1: Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Friday, April 28th, a conversation with uh, Leila Smith, Aurora Education Foundation CEO, talking to us about overseas study tours to the world's most highly ranked universities. As you'll hear, these trips seek to build the next generation of indigenous leaders. Victoria is set to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility from 10 years of age to 12. Well, this comes short of what experts and communities, especially indigenous communities, hoped for. Also on NITV Radio this Friday afternoon, conversation with Danny Francisco, National Indigenous Fashion Awards winner in 2021 and 2022, talking to us about her award winning fashion designs, the NIFAs. As nominations for the 2023 edition are now open. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news, broadcasting from Nam on the Cooling Nation this Friday afternoon. Bertrand to here. I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament The native title legislation must be amended
2: and they've
3: walked this land so many times before anybody came.
4: I am sorry.
1: A pamphlet on voice referendum to be translated in a record number of languages. Prime Minister Antony Albanese to meet with state and territory leaders today. And evacuation of foreign nationals from Sudan continues as ceasefire is prolonged. Information pamphlets for the upcoming referendum on a voice to parliament will be translated in a record number of languages, 35 up from 32 at the latest uh, federal election with an additional 20 indigenous languages. The Australian Electoral Commission says it's also working on boosting the enrollment rate, rate of Indigenous Australians, which is currently 12% lower than the national average. The date of the referendum has not yet been decided, but will take place in the last quarter of this year. The federal government has announced a $9.2 million funding to develop a First Nations water-holding model in partnership with Indigenous organisations. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been calling for enduring water-holding arrangements for more than a decade. First Nations people hold rights to about 40% of Australian land through native title, yet own and control less than 0.2% of the surface water entitlements. Native Title recognises that Indigenous people have their own systems of law and customs by which they have rights to land and waters and that these systems have endured beyond colonisation. Under Native Title legislation, there is no clear right to take or manage the water itself other than small amounts for cultural purposes after-hours access to primary medical care is set to be extended as state and territory leaders meet to discuss improving health outcomes. Prime Minister Antony Albanese is convening a national cabinet in Brisbane today with health, housing and NDIS skills and the transition to net zero emissions on the agenda. Ahead of the meeting, the government announced it would extend funding for after-hours programs to be after-hours programs to the end of June. The money will be drawn from the Strengthening Medicare Fund, which received a $750 million commitment in the government's October budget. Health Minister Mark Butler says bolstering Medicare and rebuilding general practice were priorities for the government. Also during the National Cabinet, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will be pitching his plan for growth. Part of the plan is an overhaul of the migration system. A -a once-in-a-generation review found Australia's system to be broken. It would would increase the minimum salary for sponsored workers to $70,000 and create a pathway to permanent residency for the over 2 million temporary migrants in the country. President of the Australian Council of Trade Unions Michelle O'Neill says she welcomes the evidence-based approach.
4: So we want to make sure that there's a system that is based on rigorous, independent verification of shortages. That local workers are given the opportunity to train and find the jobs that are there for the future. And that we bring migrants to this country in a way where there's a genuine shortage, but also that we support them and make sure that they're not vulnerable to exploitation.
1: A new program will invest in hypersonic weapons and quantum and next-generation technologies for Australia's Defence Force. The government has announced it will funnel $3.4 billion in funding over the next decade to create the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator Programme. The program will aim to leverage Australian innovation to feed new technologies in the Defence Force. There are six priority areas listed under the program including hypersonics, quantum technology and long-range fire capability. Operations will begin on the 1st of July and will replace the existing Defence Innovation Hub and Next Generation Technologies Fund. Evacuation missions continue in Sudan as the nation's army and a paramilitary force battled in Khartoum on Thursday. The two warring factions said they would prolong a ceasefire agreement by 72 hours despite violence in the country's capital and the western region of Darfur. Hundreds of people have been killed in almost two weeks of conflict between the army and their rivals, the Rapid Support Forces. During a visit to Washington on Thursday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres thanked the U.S. for its efforts to help evacuate U.N. and other personnel in Sudan. I want to express my uh, gratitude for the support that uh, uh, U.S. security officers have given to the uh, important operation of uh, um, relocation that we did. Uh, a convoy of 1,200, both staff members of the UN, but also uh, of NGOs and uh, different missions from uh, um, Khartoum to Port Sudan in the middle of a very difficult situation. The U.S. Secretary of State has praised a 70-year-old alliance between the U.S. and South Korea during a luncheon at the State Department. It comes as South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol visits the White House to commemorate the 70th anniversary of a mutual defense treaty signed after the Korean War. Mr. Yoon's visit marks the first South Korean presidential state visit in a decade. At a state dinner at the White House, Mr. Yoon sang the the first verse of American Pie after U.S. President Joe Biden invited him to do so in recognition that it was one of his favorite songs. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the 70-year alliance between the two countries remains strong.
4: It has been 70 years since the United States and the Republic of Korea formed our alliance, making official, a bond that was forged by Korean and American soldiers in the crucible of war. We go together. That was their
0: motto. And indeed, they lived and fought and died shoulder to shoulder.
1: Former U.S. President Donald Trump has declared he will seek re-election in his first public reaction to current U.S. President Joe Biden's campaign launch. The speech comes two days after Mr. Biden kicked off his own re-election campaign, presenting himself in the same way as he did in 2020 as a buttress against, against Trump's Make America Great Again campaign. Speaking at a campaign event in Manchester, Mr. Trump announced he will challenge Mr. Biden at the 2024 presidential election.
0: The choice in this election is... Now between strength and weakness, between success or failure, between safety or anarchy, between peace or conflict and prosperity or catastrophe, we are living in a catastrophe.
1: Chiefs NATO's chief says NATO allies and partner countries have delivered more than 98% of promised combat vehicles to Ukraine during Russia's invasion. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says Ukraine has received more than 1,550 armored vehicles, 230 tanks, plus what he says has been vast amounts of ammunition, equipment and training for nine new brigades. More than 30,000 troops are estimated to make up the new brigades. The military alliance's chief says his assistance will put Ukraine in what he calls a strong position to continue retaking occupied territory. And to sport in rugby league, the North Queensland's Cowboys' NRL season of war continues after a 44-6 loss to the Cronulla Sharks. After reaching last year's preliminary final, the Cowboys are struggling to replicate the performance in 2023. Last night's heavy defeat to the Sharks leaves them with a 3-6 record. North Queensland's coach Todd Payton says the match was far from rugby league standards.
4: Spent a lot of time there, our own end for that first 30 minutes. I thought we got it back into a bit of an arm wrestle there, got a try just before half time, but then... Uh, conceding one quickly after half-time and two blokes in the sin bin has just become too difficult.
1: And now having a look at the weather around the country this Friday: Broome sunny, thirty-four; Perth sunny, twenty-one; Adelaide showers, nineteen; Melbourne showers developing, twenty-two; Hobart a shower, two twenty; Albury Wodonga cloudy, twenty; Canberra similar conditions, twenty-two; Wollongong sunny, twenty-six; Sydney much the same, twenty-six; Newcastle sunny day, twenty-seven; Brisbane a shower, two twenty-five; Townsville partly cloudy, twenty-eight; Cairns mostly sunny, twenty-nine; Alice Springs cloudy. 27 Darwin similar conditions and the top of 35, and the Torres Strait Islands a sunny day ahead and the top of 30 degrees, and that is NITV Radio News.
0: NITV Radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. Or
1: anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandame, and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM on the Kulin Nation this Friday afternoon. Now, coming up, I am with Leila Smith, Aurora Foundation CEO, talking about a study trip that aims to build indigenous leadership in education. And Victoria aims to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility to 12 years of age. Well, it's not good enough, according to experts and advocates. And Denny Francisco, an award-winning fashion designer, will join us to talk about fashion and the National Indigenous Fashion Awards. But first, a study tour to the world's best universities expected to boost outcomes for First Nations Scholars. Your community, your conversation,
0: NITV Radio.
1: Eight Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars have recently returned from a 2 week trip exploring some of the world's top universities as part of the Aurora Foundation's inaugural United States Study Tour. And joining me to discuss this tour, its significance and opportunities for First Nations scholars is Aurora Education Foundation CEO Leela Smith. Leela Smith, welcome to NITV Radio.
4: Thank you. It's
1: great to be here again. Now, recently I spoke to one of the students who was part of the inaugural tour, Mitchell Strange. He's very excited about the tour and uh, the outcome for his academic journey and the opportunities uh, that these tours uh, offer. Now, your foundation works with academic institutions uh, institutions overseas. Why have you chosen uh, the United States this time for this education tour?
4: So Mitchell has just returned from a trip to the US where he visited um, with uh, with around eight Indigenous students that he went with to uh, New York University, Columbia University, MIT and Harvard. This is the first time that we have done a a trip with Indigenous students to look at postgraduate studies at these universities in the United States only. In the past, we used to do a five-week trip where we went to the US and the UK as well. Um, That's a lot of time away. It's a lot of time away from home, from caring responsibilities, from work, And from uni, if you're studying as well. So that means that it's not accessible to everyone. Um, It also means that you can't spend a lot of time there. It's a flying trip in five weeks in multiple countries. It's very intense. Um, And I can say that as somebody who did do that about 10 years ago, I went on the study tour when it was a five-week tour of two countries. We decided to split it and do the US only. And the reason why we did that is because over COVID, we had a lot of time to work with students to really think about what do you want? Why are you sure it's the US? Where in the US? Why do you want to study? And that it meant we could say these these eight students, they are very certain that the US is for them. The other reason why I think the US is really interesting, we want to do something really special where we don't just look at the Western Ivy Leagues in the US, elite us universities in a western sense but we want to start looking at the indigenous ivy leagues as well so this was a bit of a tester for us we want to now grow the study tour in the united states to not just include the harvards and the nyus but universities that have the best indigenous programming in the united states so students can see both worlds so this was a bit of an entree into that
1: now talking to mitchell we explored some of the programs available Besides just providing excellent academic programs, uh, cultural safety is also an area that's fundamental.
4: Absolutely. Can you imagine, you know, we talk about First Nations networks with Australia and communities outside Australia, but what if we were to do that at the student level, across all disciplines, all areas of study, and we start having pathways across universities that have excellent Indigenous teaching, excellent Indigenous curriculum and learning and connecting with other First Nations students and then having careers that that kind of build on those networks, whether they be businesses or research or government links. I just think, you know, starting earlier uh, within education is, is really exciting to start those international pathways.
1: Yeah. Again, uh, about uh, the only... Uh, alumni i've spoken to mitchell he's very passionate about engineering and technology we spoke about research in some cutting-edge communication um, uh, technologies his interest is obviously in heart science uh, aurora foundation study tours open to other areas of academia other than stem
4: this is what i love about the study tour every single <laughs> discipline every area is on the table um, we are about hearing from the students about what they want to do, and then backing them. And we work with them very closely, and we spend a lot of time when we are traveling with them um, to sit down and say with them, "What is it that you really want to do? How can we get you there?" And let's have a conversation about that. Let's connect you with an alumni, a, you know, another Indigenous student that's been there. Let's connect you with a current student. Let's connect you with an academic person from the university, and. Um, or wherever the students want to go in whatever discipline, will be there.
1: So the tours lead to studies in all disciplines. I also gather that applications are now open for the next batch of scholars. What's the process they should be uh, following now?
4: It's open right now. You're right. This is the first time that applications have been opened to, um, in, to, to, to an outside audience in around three years since covid if, you, if anyone is listening and you have been thinking about doing postgraduate study, that might be a master's, that might be a PhD, maybe um, you've been out of university for a while and you're in the workforce and you're thinking about what's next, this tour will take you to these university campuses where you can meet people doing things that you might want to do. Not only that, it will set you up for, um, for success in your application out of The 210 students who have been on this study tour since it started, those who have applied to go, 92% are successful. So we run; it is an incredibly high success rate. And those who do go on to study, 100% complete. So this is about showing students that if you want this, we will show you how to get there. If you go overseas and you look at these universities and you say, this is amazing, but you know what? It's not for me or it's not the right time. That is also um, one of the, our objectives It's to say you need to know it's not for you. You need to know it's always an option for you if you want it and you come away with a network. Um, you're part of the Aurora Alumni Network and you're part of a network of people who have an international experience uh, and know that that is a career pathway that's always open to you. So that's that's the other side of the coin. Don't wonder. Don't spend your life wondering if this opportunity is for you. Go and experience it and meet people who are doing it and know for sure.
1: Yeah. You've recently merged with uh, the Roberta Sykes and uh, have got powerful partnerships with other organizations, including the Charlie Parkins Trust and so on. And you've had some really, really successful scholars come out of your program. Can you share with us uh, some successful stories, uh, of course, besides yourself, because you're one of the alumni? <laughs> The truth is every single
4: student is an an exceptional example. There are students who have gone on the study tour. They're there because they think, I think maybe I might be interested in this but I'm not sure if I can do it. When they go over there and they experience those courses, we had um, uh, students who went over to the UK last year. I can use some recent examples. And sometimes there are so many messages that tell us that as Aboriginal people we don't belong in elite institutions. But then when students go there and they they meet people and they say, you're the right fit for us, they are so excited and they say, this is what I needed to hear. I needed to feel that I belonged. I needed to hear them to say, you would be an asset to our course. And they apply and are successful. And we are looking at those applications right now. We have our Roberta Sykes Scholarship interviews this week for the next batch of those students who went to the UK. There are a number of them who are now applying. So they have put in an application to study at the end of this year. This is how quickly wow. things can turn around. Yeah, from going to a university to being applying to study to go over there. There are so many amazing stories of different people I could point to. There is, there's there's um, young people, there's older people, there's um, people who've gone straight from university like Beth Butel and Ian Ethan Taylor who are over in Oxford right now studying Indigenous scholars. There are students who've, who've gone and had a career and they've worked for a while and they said, actually, I want to go and do a master's or I want to do a PhD, and then they've gone and applied. People like Malcolm Connolly, who's just returned from Cambridge. Nina Cass, who had, um, who had a, a newborn baby in her Charlie Perkins um, interview. She'd, she'd had the baby a, a week or two beforehand and um, held the baby in her arms while she did her Charlie Perkins interview and is now in the final year of her PhD at Cambridge. There's mothers, there's fathers, there's people who um, um, have had kids very young There is an example for everyone out there. Go and have a look at our website at our alumni on the alumni page and you will find somebody who is like you. And that's what I love about it. There is the success stories are as varied as the interests that we have as Indigenous people.
1: Now, applications are now open, as we say. What are the deadlines so people have the opportunity to put their um, applications together and uh, don't miss out?
4: Applications for the Aurora study tool close on the 1st of May. In saying that, if you are interested in applying, please go to the Aurora website, contact the team, and tell them that you are keen. We will work with everyone who is interested to help get applications together. Um, there's a lot of different parts to an application. There's references that you need. There's uh, personal statements that you need to write. There's uh, confirmations of Aboriginality to to, to, um, to, to dig out, <laughs> often in the shoebox in the back of a wardrobe somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there is some administrative work. It is not something that you can do the day before. It takes time and thought. And if I can give one tip to, to people who are thinking about applying, it is... Explain where you want to get to clearly. And that is okay if plans change. Where you want to be and how studying overseas will help you get there, and why this course, why this trip will help you decide the right course for you. That sounds easy, but that requires a bit of thought to go, what is it that I want to go overseas for? What am I, where are my plans? How will that fit with that? And that takes some thought and also. Get the most critical person that you know in your life to proofread it.
1: Yeah, I'd have to say that uh, all applications can be tricky, time-consuming, and there are many bumps along the way. So uh, we'll start to put this conversation out there as soon as possible so people don't miss out.
4: And talk to us. There are people who've had those experiences before, and we, we might have some tips to help people work through it as well.
1: Dylan Smith, CEO of Our Education Foundation. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today.
4: It was lovely. Thanks for your time. Thanks thank you. for the conversation.
0: Visit sbs.com.au/slash NITV radio.
1: Welcome back. Now, as you heard in the news, the Victorian government has announced it plans to lift the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 years of age from uh, next year. And uh, as you'll hear in our next story, experts and advocates, mainly First Nations advocates, advocates, say that's not good enough. But before we hear that story, first, a song song of freedom by fred ryan and the freedom collective freedom collective is a group that seeks to raise awareness about indigenous representation in the prison system especially indigenous youth incarceration
0: join the conversation on radio online and mobile you're with nitv radio
1: the Victorian government plans to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 years of age and before lifting it to 14 by 2027. Youth advocates have expressed disappointment, saying changes should, changes should be immediate and not in stages to stop children suffering in detention. Claire Slattery reports.
5: The Victorian Government has announced it plans to lift the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 from next year. The State's Attorney General, Jacqueline Symes, says it's a progressive reform that she's proud to deliver. Raising the
6: age to 12 is a measured, sensible approach based on evidence. We know that children um, in this cohort of this young age do not fully appreciate that their behaviour is criminal do not fully appreciate the consequences of their actions and indeed it's very often if not always a feature of an underlying cause such as trauma poverty disability Factors that can be dealt with and should be dealt with more appropriately through other measures, not the criminal justice system.
5: The government will then work towards raising the age again to 14 within four years.
6: We want to do this by 2027. We will have further ongoing detailed work about getting those settings right. We want to make sure that no young person falls through the cracks. We want to make sure that the systems, the services and the family support is in place to coincide with raising the age to 14.
5: Advocates have long been pushing for the age of criminal responsibility to be lifted to 14 years old. The issue has been the subject of the national Raise the Age campaign, which argues Australia is grossly out of step with international standards. Currently, children as young as 10 can be arrested, remanded and jailed in juvenile detention if charged or found guilty of a crime. The United Nations, child welfare groups, medical experts human rights lawyers and Indigenous advocates say the minimum benchmark should be no lower than 14. Now, many of them are expressing disappointment at Victoria's decision to take a staggered approach. Chief Executive of the Victorian Youth Affairs Council is Catherine Ellis. We are very disappointed
6: that the bold move wasn't made to move straight to 14 It's such an important issue to not have children caught up in the justice system. All the evidence shows that it actually does them more damage. And so many of these young people, these children, are actually coming from a place of trauma and damage already. The system's already failed them and then we're putting them in situations that only make things worse.
5: Aboriginal advocates say the criminal justice system will continue to harm vulnerable children. First Peoples Assembly co-chair Auntie Geraldine Atkinson questions the government's argument that it wants to test the age of 12 before going further. I don't think that
0: it needs to be tested. I think that we've seen... In our communities the results of what's happened when our children have been incarcerated and that when they come home and their life trajectories have gone down not up they need to be home with their parents being loved and nurtured and kept in community.
5: The Victorian Government says children between 12 and 13 will remain criminally responsible for what it calls certain serious crimes that are yet to be determined. Chief Executive of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite, says the Government has lacked courage in not moving to 14 immediately. So the Victorian
4: Government has put far too much stock um, in the Scared Campaign of the Police Association. Rather than listening to the experts, which are made up of those of the legal sector, the medical community, um, family and child therapists, uh, people who actually know um, how to provide an evidence-based approach um, to children who are traumatised at the hands of the state um, as it stands right now.
5: In a statement, the Victorian Police Association says careful consideration of the policy is needed to ensure that the interests of vulnerable young people caught up in criminal offending are balanced with the need to maintain community safety. Victoria's decision comes after Australian states and territories in late 2021 agreed to develop a plan to raise the age of criminal responsibility to at least 12. It makes Victoria the first state to move on the issue, but it follows the ACT's commitment to lift the age to 14 by 2026. The Northern Territory Government has legislated to raise it to 12. Tasmania plans to keep responsibility at Ten, but raise the minimum age of detention to 14. Attorney General Jacqueline Symes says every jurisdiction faces a different scale of challenge when it comes to youth justice issues. Everyone is committed to doing
6: better, um, but I think in Victoria we can lead the way. Uh, we can be a good example, and people can look to our policies to see if they are appropriate settings for their jurisdictions. Um, I think this is this is going to be nation leading. We are be, we will be the first state to raise the age and um, I know that other states will be watching intently on the experience here in Victoria.
5: The decision comes ahead of a meeting of Federal, State and Territory Attorneys General in Darwin on Friday. Claire Slattery, SBS News.
0: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
1: Welcome back now. Founder and designer of a fashion brand Ngali, a Woman, Denny Francisco. He's a successful fashion designer and the winner of the National Indigenous Fashion Awards in twenty twenty one. And 2022. Well, Danny has been part of Country to Couture and uh, Indigenous Fashion Pathways. Previously, she'd also spent time as a fashion director in Los Angeles and uh, had uh, created a children's clothes uh, in Australia as well. But here, Danny Francisco is in a conversation with NITV radio's Sharka Pekova talking about pathways to fashion, the NIFAs, as well as her clothes brand.
3: I started... Billy Cart Clothing with a colleague of mine, Neve McCall. That was when our children were probably in that age group and uh, we did it through a direct sale method which was probably today it would be the internet or the e-commerce version where we took the product directly to consumers.
2: Mm-hmm. Is it still running
3: no, it's it's not. Uh, so that business uh, closed in 2000. We were manufacturing all of our clothing in Australia at that time. Then we had a lot of competition for imported children's clothing and so on. So um, you know, finally, we made the decision to close the business.
2: Mm. Well, and now you have a new or not so new anymore, Nagali, fashion brand. And in an interview, you said that you founded uh, this brand in 2018 with the aim of taking Indigenous Australian artwork off the walls and out of souvenir shops and onto quality garments, celebrating and sharing First Nations culture in the process. Can you please tell us more about this? How does it work? How can we imagine your models?
3: So exactly that. I mean, we, we have a, um, so many talented First Nations um, creatives and artists scattered throughout the country. And one of the things that I was aware of is that, you know, sometimes um, so many people don't get to see that incredible artwork, either because they're in very remote areas or um, they need to turn up to art galleries and so on. So I was actually thinking what would it be like if we were able to translate those artworks, not for to be exactly the same as the artwork but a translation of the artwork that then could be put onto uh, fabric prints and then um, made it into uh, high-quality garments, as you say. So that way that we could give more reach uh, for our First Nations artists, uh, but also too as a way of celebrating culture and and country and supporting the artists' communities. And and then I guess, you know, also too with supporting our children's education, which is part of what we do through our our sales avenue. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. And who is this fashion for? Where can we Uh, see can wear it? (laughs)
3: Yes, well, who can wear it? Look, it's really designed to be what we call it to be ageless, um, trendless, and timeless. So, (laughs) what do we mean by that? Is that we started thinking that it would be appealed to an audience of, of, say, you know, 30 to 50. It seems like it's more now with the history of our sales and how that happens, it's more 25 through to 75 because the silhouettes are very simple in in construct because it's the artwork that is the hero. And then... We don't design for a particular season in terms of it doesn't stop and then start. So you don't stop one collection and start a completely uh, new one. So that's why we say that it's actually seasonless so that um, it's like having the product that we do is, is kind of on a journey. And then it's not really connected to trends, you know, like trends that actually start and then they get sort of, in inverted commas, out of fashion. So we don't work that way. We just work at having really amazing garments with incredible prints that are really comfortable to wear that you can just about wear anywhere at any time of the year depending on how you layer them up and how you create the looks yourself around the products that you have
2: mm-hmm. and how did you get into fashion in the first place look
3: it's, it's an interesting question I'm not really quite sure I think that I've, I've sort of always had um, an interest in things you know creative things and I guess that fashion is a way of being able to play with that you know when you're younger to you it's not that difficult to access knitting yarns you know to to knit sweaters or fabrics that you could play around with to create something um, that hadn't existed before so I think that I really got into it by simply just playing with materials I guess.
2: Hmm. And what is your inspiration
3: I think as a First Nations person, we get a lot of inspiration from country, being out on on country into big, wide open spaces Um, and there's a, you know, is a beautiful connection that comes from that and it feels like there's a lot of room for creativity to come to the surface there. And then also to, of course, being really uh, inspired by the artworks and the creativity that exists within, you know, our culture and, and all of the, the different types, I guess, of, um, of creatives that do things in different ways, whether or not it's people that, um, uh, that are doing paintings or making accessories or weaving or dyeing. So all of those sort of elements that make up fashion in one way or another are all inspirational.
2: Were there or what were your challenges when you got into the fashion world?
3: Well, um, I guess, you know, we started in 2000, uh, in September 2018. So perhaps one of our biggest challenges was COVID, which was. Mm. Um, with the challenges of of many of course Um, but I I think it's I think as a small business owner the challenges come with having the resources that you need so the the human resources that you need to sort of like help you to bring your vision to to reality because human resources or people that you bring on into your business you know it costs money to do that so it's it's really um, you know being able to manage that financial the financial elements of a startup
2: Mm. you won the national indigenous fashion awards in 21 and 22 what did that mean for you personally and for your business as well
3: yeah look it's a really interesting question because winning the award had me feel a little uncomfortable i i don't think that we do anything on our own Um, i think that everything that we do is done in one way or another collectively you know whether you get inspiration from somebody else or whether you're translating somebody else's artworks um whether you're having sort of like discussions that emanate into something that you end up creating by the way of garments or collections so it was it was something that I really kind of like had to sit in and it wasn't until I spoke to Lindsay Malay, who was the artist that we were collaborating with or that we still collaborate with and and he was super excited about that too that I was able to see it through his through his eyes as well, that this was another way for his artwork and his creativity to be, to be recognized. And that actually had me feel a lot more comfortable about winning the award. And it was equally the same but heightened um, when we won it for the second year.
2: Hmm. That's so beautiful. Well, I, I guess this kind of answers my second question. Why do you think you won? Like obviously you were the best, but, you know, what do you think in your work that may, made it stand up? Look, I, you know, I don't know
3: that I was the best and that was why I, I, I won it. I don't think so. Um, like we didn't nominate ourselves um, for either of those awards. It doesn't feel that comfortable to do so. So I don't know who it was that nominated us. I don't know how many people nominated us. Um, I, and, I don't, and I don't know how many people didn't get nominated You know, in terms of um, there may have been other people out there like me who didn't feel comfortable to nominate themselves and then maybe other people, you know, didn't think to nominate them. So because I think that there's so much creativity in our space that I I think that the award, you know, maybe it could have been won by anybody. Um, I don't know. You can tell that I'm actually not that comfortable in winning awards.
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's so that's so nice and what what are your plans for your future work and we see your models next
3: um so right now we've just come uh, off the back of Melbourne Fashion Festival where we we launched our autumn winter range but next month we we do have Australian Fashion Week and we have a solo runway we've been offered a solo runway in that um in that fashion week which is actually um Uh, pretty extraordinary it's exciting um but terrifying perhaps at the same time but what it does do is it gives us the opportunity that if we're putting the product clothing on the runway then you know it gives us also to the opportunity to bring in a number of our other creatives who are doing incredible things around accessories and jewelry and and so on that Um, really add um, a special uniqueness to what we're able to show on the runway, but it's also to something that we can share with more of our creatives, which is really what makes it more meaningful.
2: Hmm. Listening to you, I'm wondering what's your favourite part of the creative process? It's definitely working with the artworks,
3: the translation of the artworks, needing to do that in a really respectful way, um, envisioning how it might be translated in visually Mm -hmm. what it will look like on the garments themselves because you get surprises in that you get these little surprises that come up when you go and go oh that looks amazing oh I didn't think of it or didn't see it like that yeah so it's so it's fun it's inspiring and um yeah it's a really kind of enjoyable process to sit in Mm
2: -hmm. can we buy your things in shops or how does that work with with garments like this
3: yeah, so we're still you know, basically an e-commerce brand. We did have a temporary uh, store at the international section of the airport in Melbourne for a, a little while and we do have some product in David Jones in Sydney. But I guess people do come into our studio in the Docklands in Melbourne uh, to see our product. We don't have a store presence as as such and you know, maybe one day we will.
2: Well, Danny, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us on NATV Radio.
3: That's a pleasure.
1: And that was uh, Denny Francisco, fashion designer and founder of uh, Ngali Fashion Brand. We are and Denny Francisco is also the winner of the National Indigenous Fashion Awards in 2021 and 2022. And uh, she was here in conversation with NITV Radio's uh, Sharqa Pekova.
0: Join NITV Radio on Facebook.
1: And uh, King Stingray actually collected another award, not uh, that, well, just uh, last night. Uh, We'll bring you more on uh, this award uh, in our next uh, program. So this brings us to the end of uh, today's program. I am Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for your company this Friday afternoon. Till next time. Bye for now.